You are listening to Melbourne Lights Church Weekly Podcast. I'm excited. Um, probably unlike a lot of people, um, I get excited to preach. <laughs> For some of you, it might be your worst nightmare <laughs> having to public speak. Um, but the Lord makes all kinds of people. <laughs> so I must be one of the crazy ones. Oh, how exciting. Just for a second, this is not spiritual at all, but can we just see how beautiful this is? Like, I spent far too long searching for a template, but then the Lord was like, ah, I have one for you. So this is intentional. This is not just accidental. I didn't just pick it because it was beautiful, but it does tie in. So this morning, moving towards maturity in Christ. So I have a question for you to start with. Um, who has heard of the children's story, The Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carr? Can I get a little wave of hands? I'm banking on the fact that most, if not all of you, will have um, either had the story read to you or perhaps read it to other people. Um, it's by a man called Eric Carl. If you've got kids like I do, I've got two kids, um, you've probably read it to them heaps of times. <laughs> My kids' favourite part was always at the end of the story when the caterpillar changes into a butterfly and I think it says, and then he turned into a beautiful butterfly and it's like um, a double page of this beautiful butterfly. And you know how kids are funny, like you can have read the same story a million times and every time they're like... <gasps> as the butterflies revealed. And if you know the story, the first thing that the caterpillar did after he was born was he started to look for some food to eat. Um, And he started off eating healthy food, but then after a little while, he got a little bit greedy and he started to eat just anything that he could find, lollipops, pies, sausages, watermelon. And he just ate everything in front of him without any kind of discernment because he was just a baby. And he didn't know any better. And he made himself a little bit sick. And then the story says after that, he ate a nice green leaf. And he felt much better. And after that, he was ready to get into the cocoon. And it says that he, um, and begin that process of transformation. It says that he was in there for more than two weeks, which I feel like is quite a long time in the caterpillar world. I don't know how long caterpillars and butterflies live for, but I feel like that's a significant chunk of their life. Um, And in order to come to maturity, he had to undergo a metamorphosis so that he could become a butterfly. Ah. If he'd stayed as a caterpillar, he wouldn't have reached his full potential, yeah? Caterpillars, look, I mean, Jesus has made them, so they're beautiful. But I don't feel like caterpillars are really that impressive. (laughs) You see them, they're cool, but I feel like they don't make you go, a caterpillar, Yeah, but I feel like butterflies, when you see a butterfly, they make you immediately think of the wonder of the creator, yeah? And they catch the eye of everyone who sees them. So what do caterpillars and butterflies have to do with anything? I feel, I'm gonna tell you, this is, I'm just setting it up, yeah? There's a call for maturity for everyone who says they're a follower of Jesus. So if you're here today and you say that you're a follower of Jesus, there's a call to maturity. God has an expectation that his people would move from infants to what the Bible calls the fullness of the stature of Christ. Oswald Chambers, he says this about it. Spiritual maturity is not reached by the passing of years, but by the obedience to the will of God. 
Um, and I came across a study um, done in the US last year that discovered that nearly half of all Christians had not progressed past what they called the infant stage of faith in Christ. Now, just as a caveat, they did do some preliminary questions basically to figure out if the people they were surveying were actually followers of Jesus. So these were people who said, yes, I have accepted Jesus as my Lord and Saviour, you know, and not just do you call yourself sort of like a Christian. So most people hadn't progressed past that point. So you can see the newborns and the infants, nearly half of all the people hadn't gotten past that stage. So while most of them said that they prayed at least once a day, most of them admitted that they didn't, um, they weren't intentional about setting aside time to do it. And most of them were praying sort of self-focused prayers they called them. Um, And some of the main reasons they found that people weren't progressing in their maturity was because they didn't read their Bibles and they didn't attend church regularly. Interesting. And then of the 2% who made it to what they called, oh, just go back one second, who made it to see the last category. I know this one's a bit fuzzy, but the godparent stage. So these are categories they've made up. But the final stage, the godparent stage, of the 2% of people who even made it that far, still half of those people said they didn't feel like disciple-making was the top priority in their lives. Bit scary, yeah? Now, obviously, this was done in the US, but even if the figures are not quite as high in Australia, I still feel like we've got a really big proportion of the church who are caterpillars in their faith rather than butterflies. So today, I just wanted to have a look at the journey of coming to spiritual maturity, and I wanted to cover three things the goal of maturity, how we partner in that process, and then some hallmarks of maturity. So let's jump straight in, yeah, the goal of maturity. Um, As I was reading through Ephesians recently in my quiet time, I noticed that there was this particular phrase that Paul says a couple of times, and it really jumped out to me. And you know when you feel like the Holy Spirit's really highlighting something to you because you're just like, whoa, I've never seen that before in that way. So let's have a read. It's from Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to jump in from verse 11. Um, So it says, In him, or in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. Hooray! Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Say to the praise of his glory. Thank you. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Awesome. So I want to start off by emphasizing this morning that everything that we do as disciples of Jesus should be to the praise of his glory. At the end of the day, nothing else matters. Romans 11 puts it like this in verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. Amen. And Colossians 1 says that he or Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, it's covering all the bases, yeah? All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Yeah, it's painting this picture for us. It's all about Jesus. 
C.S. Lewis, he has such a way with words, and he said this, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. Bam! Wholly superfluous, totally not needed. You might be like, well, that's a bit harsh. Yeah? And if we sort of read it through the wrong lens, it can be like, wow, so I don't even matter. Okay, but then Holy Spirit said something to me the other day and it actually like, I had to like stop for a second and really think about it. He said to me, did Jesus save you just for you or did he save you for him? You might actually have to take a moment like later to think about that because when he first said it, I was like, what, what do you mean? But actually, did he save me just for him so that I can be saved or did he actually save me for himself? If we're honest... We can sometimes be pretty selfish and self-focused. We often don't have a good sense of how we fit into the bigger picture of life. But the Bible is really clear that we have to find our place in God's story rather than trying to figure out how God fits into our story and our lives. (laughs) You know, babies and children, if you have them or you've worked with them or you've come in contact with them, they think that the whole world revolves around them. And in some ways it does, because you know, as adults and as parents, we do have a duty to and a responsibility to give them what they need. But what's the purpose of that? To help them grow up. Yeah? As we get older, we should be developing the ability to look and think beyond just ourselves and beyond our needs. And that's why good parents, they discipline and they teach and they encourage their children to actually grow up, not just to get physically bigger, but to actually grow up and become mature adults. John 15 tells us that as we produce fruit, God will prune us so that we become more fruitful. And Hebrews 12 says that God actually disciplines and corrects who? The ones that he loves. So when we think about what that looks like spiritually, it means it's okay to start off as a baby believer. It's okay to start off as a caterpillar, but it's not okay to stay as one. Our lives should increasingly be all about bringing God glory. That means looking more like Jesus, acting more like Jesus, and reflecting his character and his nature in our lives. You know, and as we make decisions about life, because we're faced, I mean, they say that we make thousands of decisions every single day. As we make decisions, we should ask ourselves, you know, will this accurately represent Jesus to those around me? Does it align with his word and his will for my life? Will this decision or this choice bring glory just to me, or is it going to reflect glory back onto him? I don't want you to think, because I'm just like, you know, I've gone boom, just started off hard. (laughs) I don't want you to think that I'm preaching this at you and that I'm not like, you know, in this myself. This is born out of like a journey that I'm in right now with the Lord. I haven't got it all worked out. I don't get it perfect all the time. I'm on the journey with him learning how to do this. But the more that I'm seeing Jesus and the closer that I'm getting to him, the more I'm realizing how far from perfect I am, how much further I still have to go. But despite my shortcomings, he still chooses to reveal himself to me and he's still molding me to be more like him and he's choosing to love me and partner with me in the process of transformation, yeah? 
And I really felt as I was preparing, I felt God's Spirit is saying to His people, yeah, which is you, it's me. This is not a season to sit and watch from the sidelines. It's not a season to shrink back. It's a season to wake up, to get up, and to grow up. It's a season to advance and to not retreat. Yeah? And this is not a call for a select group of people. This is not for the leaders. It's not for the elders. It's not for the music team or whoever in your head you think, oh, those are the people. No, this is for the whole people of God. Yeah? So can I encourage you, don't miss out on what God is doing in and through His church because you're not ready to respond and to grow. So hopefully we can see that maturity, it's not guaranteed. <laughs> Aging, yes. Yeah, grey hair, wrinkles, yes, unfortunately. But growing up, no. <laughs> it's something that we actually have to be intentional about pursuing and making space for in our lives. And hopefully we can agree that the end goal of our lives is that Jesus would receive all the glory. But I guess there's that question of, well, what does the Bible say about how that actual process works? So that's what I want to have a look at now. I know, I was like, quick, I have to like remember to actually take a drink of water. Um, so we're going to go, number two, what does partnering in that process look like? And I feel like Hebrews 12 gives us a little bit of a clue as to the starting place. It says um, in verses one and two, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hmm. Looking to Jesus, yeah? So we can see, obviously, that we're called to run a race and that it's one of endurance. I'm not gonna lie, it's not my favorite kind of race. If I have to choose between doing a long race, a long run, a marathon, and a sprint, I will always pick a sprint. I feel like the Lord gave me more ability in sprinting than marathon running. Some of you might be the opposite. But this race that we're in spiritually, it is a long race. It's an endurance race. And as we run, we have to look at Jesus because he's not just the author, yeah, but he's also the perfecter, or some translations say he's the finisher of our faith. So we know that he's promised to be part of that journey. And I think that the catalyst for maturity is encounter with Jesus. You see, when we don't encounter Jesus, everything that we do is born out of pressure and performance and feeling obligated and striving. Yeah, it produces dead works of the flesh. And it pretty much just puts us back under law. It's works again. But when we respond to God from a place of encounter and we actually see Him face to face, everything that we do is motivated by love. It's motivated by gratitude and thankfulness for what He's done. And there's an eager submission to the will of God. We get to live in His grace and His mercy and we find ourselves staying in that place of His peace and His rest. And we actually receive empowering to live by the Spirit. Pope Benedict XVI, the last one, in case you don't know what number we're up to, I didn't. Um, <laughs> he said this, 
faith is above all a personal and intimate encounter with Jesus and to experience his closeness and his friendship and his love. Only in this way does one learn to know him evermore and to love and follow him evermore. May this happen to each one of us. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful, what a revelation. Speaking of revelations, we're going to have a look in Revelation chapter one, um, where that actually, I legit did not plan that. That happened right then in the moment. It was like Jesus was like, oh, it was good. (laughs) Thank you, Holy Spirit. John has this encounter, yeah, that impacts and it changes his life. And so I want us to have a little read of that. And then I'll just pull out some, I guess, some helpful keys of how we can steward our encounters with Jesus well. So it's in chapter one and it's from verse 10. And this is John speaking. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the name of all the different churches. He says, and then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades." Wow, what an experience. So what can we learn from it? I think there's four things. They're all right in there, I've highlighted them. First one is expectation. John says, I was ready in the spirit. So are you living in the spirit so you have an expectation for God to show up and speak to you? Is that how you approach your encounter? Do you come with expectation or do you come just to do it to check the box? Are you listening and looking? Because we can see there it says John heard. Oh, it's gone. Sorry, never mind. It's fine. Keep it there. Um, We can see that he heard, yeah, and then he turned and saw. So are your spiritual senses attuned to the voice of God? Do you know what he looks and sounds like? The Bible says you do because he says, my sheep know my voice. So you actually do, but maybe do you recognize? Yeah? Yeah. Third thing, we've got to bow down. It's this thing of worship and reverence. John's response to seeing Jesus, it actually doesn't say he bowed down. It says he fell down as though he was dead. He saw Jesus and he was like, wah, face to the floor. Does encountering Jesus bring us to our knees? Does it make us respond with repentance and with a desire for obedience and holiness because we've actually beheld his face? And the fourth thing is this thing of obedience. John was told to do one thing. So he was told to write down what you see, yeah? And he was told one thing not to do. He says, don't be fearful, don't be afraid. So are you ready to obey what the Lord says when he speaks to you? And that might be something that he's wanting you to start doing. Or maybe that's something that he's actually telling you to stop, something to lay down. 
you might be sitting here thinking, well, yeah, that was a pretty special encounter. But, you know, John, he was like the Lord's favourite disciple and, you know, he was an apostle. And so it makes sense that he would have that kind of an encounter with the Lord. But, you know, I've never had anything like that happen to me. There's a man called Graham Cook, who some of you will be familiar with. He's written a whole stack of really great books. And in one of them, he says that God has created a secret place for each one of us. And his heart's desire is to reveal that secret place to us so that we can meet him there. That's good news, right? Where's your secret place? Do you know how to come into God's presence? Can you quiet yourself and be still in that place with him? We actually have to learn how to be still and to be quiet and to shut off, yeah, all the other stuff. Are you willing to wait until he speaks? Because I know sometimes I've come in to the space of like, okay, I'm going to have my quiet time. And then I'm like, go on then. Like, I'm here. What are you waiting for? But he's like, I'm waiting for you to be still and quiet. I like to talk. Yeah, some of you don't like to. That's fine. Whether you're a talker or not is irrelevant. It's about the internal. Quiet. Shh. And wait, and wait, and wait sometimes until he speaks. Yeah? If you already know how to do that, awesome. (laughs) Maybe that's something that you are on that journey of and you're like, I kind of feel like I know how to do that a little bit. That's cool, keep doing it. And if you're thinking, I don't know, I'm not sure if I totally know how to do that, that's okay, because you're in the right place. And there's people here that might be a little bit further in their journey of knowing how to do that who can actually help you. If you're willing to learn and you're willing to ask, you don't actually need anybody, but sometimes it's helpful just to chat with people and go, how do you do that? What does that look like practically? And you ask for help. Find someone and go, what do you do? What do you find works? What doesn't work? So you know how that little caterpillar, yeah? He went through the metamorphosis and he came out a butterfly. Did you know, we're about to get a word, are you ready? I feel like every time I preach, I'm like, I'm going to give you a word. That word for metamorphosis, the word transformed, yeah, it's used four times in the New Testament. Once in Matthew 17, once in Mark 9, in Romans 12, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says this, but when one turns to the Lord, and a lot of us will know this and we can sort of quote this scripture. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Hooray. And we go, hooray, freedom in the Lord. And then we stop there. But you have to keep reading because it says how we get freedom. And we all with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being, there it is, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So yes, there's freedom wherever Jesus is Lord, but how? Beholding his glory with unveiled faces. And as we behold his glory, we start to change. So it comes from the word metamorpho which is where we get our English word metamorphosis. They sound pretty similar. And it implies a change of inmost nature that can be outwardly, that is outwardly visible. 
a change of inmost nature that it may be outwardly visible. So just like the little caterpillars are changed from the inside and they're made for transformation, we're also made for transformation. As new creations in Christ, we've been reborn, yeah? And we're destined to be changed into the likeness of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. So how can we submit ourselves to that process? Romans 12 tells us, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies... Oh, by the way, this is the Amplified. There's more words. To present your bodies, dedicating all of yourselves and set apart as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God, which is your rational or logical and intelligent act of worship. And don't be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually. I didn't even know that it said that until I read the Amplified. By the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes so that you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in his plan and purpose for you. Cool, right? Awesome. You know, sometimes you're like, how do I do this? And Jesus is like, read the Bible. I already wrote it down. (laughs) Like, I don't know how to do that. He's like, it's in the scriptures. Yeah, that's why we have to read up. And like the survey at the start was like, people are not growing. Why? Because they're not coming to church sharpen, 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 sharpen. And why? Because they're not reading the word. And God's like, you keep asking me. And I'm like, I already spoke. Read the word. It's right in there. All the answers are there. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need. Paul's saying, present your bodies. It means you have to willingly do it. It's not under compulsion. In Old Testament times, a person would bring their sacrifice, yeah, to the altar themselves, and that says they would lay their hand on the head of the animal to signify that it was being sacrificed on their behalf. And their actual sins were transferred to the animal that was about to die. They were associating it with themselves. So Paul's saying, bring yourself to the altar. And don't just do it once, do it daily. The Amplified Version, I love how it says that this sacrifice is our spiritual or our reasonable worship. It's intelligent. It's logical. In light of everything that Christ has done for us. Paul's exhorting the Romans and he's saying, what, this is the paraphrase, you know, what other response could we possibly have but to lay down our lives at the altar to be transformed and renewed by God so that he can use us however he sees fit? easy apparently. (laughs) I think this is why abiding in Christ is so crucial because it's from the place of being with him that we're motivated and inspired to present our lives and then to be changed. And it's from the place of of intimacy and encounter that we actually begin to have a desire in us to be renewed. Because you can't look at him and want to stay the same. Do you know what I mean? Like if, you've, like if you've seen Jesus, you can't look at him face to face and go, I think I'll just stay as I am. It's not possible. John thought he was going to die when he saw Jesus. It's got to have like an impact on us. If it doesn't impact us, we're not really looking at him. And Paul's saying it's actually possible, you know, the opposite of what he's encouraging them to do is possible. It's possible to conform to the world's ways of thinking 
and many of us have done it. It's possible to live with a mind that's not renewed. I mean, it's not possible to live well, but it is possible. And the result is that we're not able to discern the will of God. We don't know what's good or perfect or acceptable in his sight. And ultimately, we're not changed on the inside, so we don't change on the outside. So those other two places that I talked about where that word transformed is used are actually in the accounts of Jesus being transfigured on the mount, on the mountain. Um, but before we read that passage, I wanted to give you some context for what was happening by looking at the example of Peter um, and the journey that he went on with Jesus found in Luke 9. I love Peter because I feel like Peter is us. Like he's trying his hardest, he's doing his best. And sometimes he like has these amazing revelations and sometimes he's just like, and he puts his foot in it and Jesus is like, oh, good try, Peter. So I love Peter because I feel like there's so many things that we can learn from him as, but you know what the best part is? He's on the journey. Jesus is not like you have to be perfect. The whole point of the journey is that we're getting there. So I love Peter because he's on the journey with Jesus. So the first thing we see in this, I'm not gonna read you Luke 9 because it takes too long. I don't have time. So I'm gonna summarize for you. The first thing we see before all this happens is this thing of who is he to you? And it um, starts with Jesus. He's asking his disciples that question, you know, who do the people say I am? Um, who do you say I am? And this is that beautiful passage where Peter confesses and says, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus didn't reveal to his disciples what was coming until they could confess that they knew who he was. And so for us, this confession obviously starts at salvation, but it's a continual acknowledgement in our lives that Jesus is Lord. We have to actually keep checking that he is. And then we see there's this thing of there's no shortcuts allowed. So that revelation of Jesus is Lord is followed by Jesus prophesying about his suffering and his death and his resurrection on the cross. And this time, beautiful Peter, he speaks up again and he says, oh, far be it from you, Lord, because he doesn't want what Jesus is saying to be true. He doesn't want Jesus to die because he doesn't understand what it means. And he doesn't, know, he doesn't understand, why is Jesus saying this? Surely not you, Lord. You're not gonna die. How can you leave us? And Jesus responds by rebuking Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. But I feel like he didn't say it quite like that. <laughs> You know, I think it was a bit stronger. Get behind me, Satan, because he knows the source of Peter's outburst. And we can read that and think, oh, poor Peter, how embarrassing. Imagine the Lord says to you, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> but if you understand it in the context of Jesus knowing that the only way for him to receive glory and to be transformed back into his glorious self permanently is he has to suffer and then he has to die. Then you can figure out why he's responding so strongly. He's like, don't, don't say that. It has to happen. Peter wanted to take a shortcut in the glorification process. He wanted all the benefits of the coming Messiah, but he didn't want to experience any suffering to get there. And that's what Satan offered Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness. He says, you know, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms. But Jesus was mature enough to know that you can't receive glory by taking shortcuts. Even caterpillars have to spend time, you know, in that cocoon to become butterflies. You can't skip that step. 
And so the, um, the third sort of thing that we see in that passage is this thing of taking up your cross. So Jesus, after those two things have happened, Jesus speaks to Peter and the larger group of disciples and he's explaining to them this thing of, if you wanna truly follow him, you have to be willing to take up your cross. In order to gain their lives, they had to be willing to lose them. And, you know, the disciples then, they would have been very familiar. Like, I think, you know, sometimes you read things in the Bible and you're like, oh, it's really hard to picture that because it's so not our culture. It's so not like how we live today. The disciples, they knew what crucifixion was. They'd seen it. They'd smelt it. They'd heard it. Like, they knew what it meant to be put up on a cross. And Jesus is saying, take up your cross. And they're like, what? What, what do you mean, Lord? It made no sense in the natural and it totally went against the picture that they, the Jews of that time had in their minds of the Messiah and what they thought he had come to accomplish for Israel. It wasn't to die on a cross. It's not an easy or a comfortable call. It's a call to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus no matter what the cost is. And it actually requires sacrifice and perseverance and hardship. Ugh. But that's like, that's the full gospel. It's not just have your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven. Yeah? That's the place where our faith gets tested. Like, do you actually believe? Is he really Lord? Is he really enough? And thankfully, we, we know how Peter's story ends. We know that he finally, he got it, it clicked. Because it says he was crucified upside down. In the, he said, I, I, if I'm going to be crucified, don't even let it be in the way Jesus was put me upside down. So he got it, he got there. And Jesus was trying to teach his disciples and he's teaching us how to come to maturity so that we're ready for the mountaintop. Don't forget we're about to get there. I know this is like a really long like tangent to get back. We're about to go up the mountain. He's encouraging them that cross bearers are also glory receivers. Yeah, and this might sound like it cuts across. You're like, didn't you just say at the start that like only Jesus is meant to get the glory? So how does that work? But Jesus says in Matthew 17, 17, when he comes back again in the glory of his father, he says, I will repay each person according to what they have done. So if you are willing to share in my sufferings, then you will also share in my glory. Isn't that awesome? So it's on the back of all of these things, yeah, that Jesus is transfigured. So uh, Luke and Mark and Matthew, they all have an account in the Gospels and they are all pretty similar but slightly different. Um, and Luke's account's actually the one that doesn't use that word, the metamorpho, but I feel like he gives the most details. So we're gonna read Luke's account. So it's um, in Luke chapter nine and it's from verse 28. It says, now about eight days after these sayings, so everything he said, yeah, that we just talked about, he took with him Peter and John and James. And he went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. So that's that metamorphosis. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Just as an aside, I think it's cool that they came down just to have a little chat about what was gonna happen. Just saying. And now Peter and those who were with him were heavy. Can you imagine? They were like, are you really going to do it? He's like, yeah, I'm going to. It's the plan. And they're like, wow, I can't wait to see what happens. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Um, Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one or my beloved one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. He's the only one left. And as they kept, um, they kept silent and they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. I could have preached just out of that scripture. There's so many things in there. But I think it's easy to look at Jesus and think, well, yeah, he's Jesus. Of course, he would be transformed. But how does that help me? What we have to remember is that Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. And miraculously, he was able to keep his glory hidden from the world all the time. And I think Jesus was trying to show his disciples a couple of things in that moment. He was encouraging them and reminding them, remember, I'm still God. (laughs) Yes, I've added humanity to my deity, but I'm still God. And despite all of the things that I've just said are gonna happen, I'm still in control. I'm still the king. (laughs) Jesus didn't change into someone else. He just let them see him as he really is. And I think he was also giving them a taste of what is to come. You know, one day when we go to be with Jesus, whenever he decides that is, we're gonna be changed, fully changed, into our glorious and imperishable selves. How we are right now is not the final result. But the really amazing thing is we don't have to wait until then to start the process of transformation. We can start it now and he'll finish it when we meet him face to face. If you don't get anything else out of what I say today, I want you to remember this. You were born to transform. I'll say it again. You were born to transform. It's in your very DNA. If you think of a little mustard seed, yeah, the Bible says it's the smallest of all the seeds. Within that one tiny seed is all the potential for a huge tree to grow. Yeah, yeah. obviously we know it needs water, it needs soil, it needs sunshine. But within the actual DNA of the seed, God has put everything necessary for it to grow to its full potential. Your old self is dead, it's gone. Old man, done with. When you accepted Jesus, but your new self has the full capacity to hold and to reflect the glory of God. I mean, if that doesn't encourage us, I don't know what will. (laughs) So I hope that we can see, you know, as followers of Jesus, we're called to walk on this journey of transformation. And ultimately, it's to the praise of his glory. But I think sometimes we can get almost so caught up in just the day-to-day. Yeah, we're busy. We've got jobs. We've got kids. We've got stuff that we've got to do. And we can sort of forget to, I guess, check where we're up to. And as I've been reading through the New Testament recently, just in my own quiet time, I was really struck again by Paul's letters and how often he actually talks about the process. And over and over again, he says to the believers, I'm praying for you. And his prayers were all centered around them becoming mature in Christ. And actually, Ryan read one of the scriptures this morning that I was going to read. So cool, right? How Holy Spirit's linking it all together. 
So I wanted to just finish off this morning by giving you some practical questions that you can ask yourself to, I guess, measure how you're going in your growth journey. Um, and this is what we're going to call the hallmarks, I guess, you know, of maturity. I wanted to read all the scriptures, but I don't have time to read several of Paul's letters. <laughs> with you this morning. So if you want to know the specifics, you will have to do some homework. And you, I would encourage you to read through his letters, read through Ephesians, read through Philippians, Colossians, first, you know, second Corinthians, read through Timothy, just like read the New Testament. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, just read the, just read the whole New Testament, <laughs> read the Bible. Because they're, it's full of wisdom and it's full of practical keys. It's full of the how-tos and the what does it look like? But I'm going to give you the scripture reference so you can at least have a starting place and the question out of it. So the first one from 2 Corinthians 7 from verse 1 is, are you living in the fear of the Lord? Because it says that holiness, yeah, we're on the journey, but holiness is brought to completion where? In the fear of the Lord. A right fear of him will always bring repentance and out of that a changed life. The second thing is from Ephesians chapter one in verse three, and it's, are you operating out of a correct identity? The Bible says that we can have a secure identity in Christ because we've been adopted as sons and daughters into his family and we've been given an inheritance. You're in the family business now. Everything that we do is born out of that spirit of sonship and not an orphan spirit. The third question from Ephesians chapter two is, are you walking in good works? We need to have an understanding, you know, not in our heads, but in our hearts. Actually, it says we're God's workmanship. Yeah, he's molded us, created us, he's made us. And not only has he fashioned us, but he's prepared us for good works. And the transformation process, it actually allows us to be fit for the master's use and it empowers us to walk on the path that he set out for us. The fourth one is from Ephesians chapter four, and it's, are you striving for unity and love? Striving means like, you actually have to put a bit of effort in, yeah? And we're not doing like striving in the flesh, but it's like, you've got to focus on that. It's actually got to be something that you're like, okay, I've got to keep this in the front of my mind. Am I striving for and maintaining oneness with God's spirit? So my heart is like, let nothing come between me and the Lord. But secondly, for also unity in the body of Christ. Yeah, so mature believers, it says they bear with one another in unselfish love and they want what's best for others, not just themselves. So, you know, mature believers are willing to let go. They're willing to cover over. They're willing to forgive. They're willing to give up their preferences. Why? For the sake of unity. If it benefits the body, then I'm happy. Done, full stop. And the last question is from Colossians chapter one and it's, are you producing good fruit? Paul's prayer was that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Because when we're full of that, we're able to walk worthy of the Lord and be fully pleasing to him. I wanna be fully pleasing to the Lord. You know, good fruit is the evidence in our lives that we're walking in wisdom. If you wanna know if you're walking in wisdom, what fruit are you producing? So hopefully, you know, this is like super practical.
practical. Hopefully, as I'm asking the questions, you're thinking, oh, okay, cool. And some of them you might have gone, yeah, I feel like I'm doing, I'm doing okay in that area. Like that's something, you know, God's taught me and I'm, I'm doing well. And there's others you might have gone, oh, actually, maybe like, maybe I do need to look at that a little bit. Um, so I just wanted to encourage you as, you know, like ask Holy Spirit to reveal to you a place that you can start. Is there an area that he's just highlighting that you think, yeah, actually, I think he's wanting to do that in me a little bit more. Rick Warren, um, he says, spiritual maturity is neither instant nor automatic. It is a gradual and progressive development that will take the rest of your life. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> So it's not quick, but that's okay. If you commit yourself to it, you'll find yourself looking more and more like Jesus. And that's exciting to think about. My heart for us, you know, as a church community is that we would encounter Jesus. You know, and not just once, not just like, oh, you know, like when people say, share your testimony, they're like, so on the day I got saved, that's awesome. Like, never let go of that because that's the start. But like, let's encounter Jesus again and again and again. Our intimacy with him, you know, if we have that intimacy, it's going to produce in us that ever-increasing maturity so that each day we get a little bit closer to reaching the fullness of the stature of Christ. We have to cooperate with and respond to the Lord in obedience so that we keep ourselves in the process of metamorphosis. And ultimately, that's how we bring glory to God. So can I leave you with a final scripture? Can I actually, could the um, music team come up so that we're ready to respond to the Lord? Let me leave you with this one. I feel like this is a good way to end. Paul's like, if I'm sure of one thing, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We've got to hold on to that. Jesus started it. He started the journey. And he's also going to finish the journey. So we can be confident that he's in that with us and the good work that he started, that he'll finish that off. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If you have any questions or would like more information, please contact us at melbournelightschurch.com.au.